Lord God, tonight as we think about the intricate truths of Your Word, Lord, we are approaching a doctrine that is so profound, Lord, but sometimes very confusing and disorienting. We know that we are uh, creatures who are liable to err one side or the other, and especially with doctrines like this, Lord, it is so easy to find ourselves veering off of the path of Your Word. So tonight, would you please guide and direct our time together as we think about this amazing doctrine. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the line. Here's the line that we're going to be looking at, and then I'll explain to you what we're going to do. It says, Election is the gracious purpose of God according to which He regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. Tonight... Uh, I don't think she'll mind me saying this, but I'm going to say it. I'll get beat up. If I don't show up to church next week, um, check the house, call the cops. All right. So I was leaving the house, and I told Stacy, I am nervous about tonight. Genuinely. Like, I'm nervous about tonight. And in thinking about why that is, really, it's just because of this one word here. Election. This is a biblical word. I am scared of a word of the Bible. <laughs> The reason is because there is a lot of hostility that can be drummed up around this word. It is crazy to me. When I came to this church, one of the interview questions, I don't remember specifically what it was, but it was about predestination or election. And I gave an answer. I don't remember the answer I gave. It must have been okay. But I do remember that the next meeting was going to be entirely about that topic. And so whenever I got to the meeting, the comment was, there's a church nearby that they had a bout with Calvinism. And so we want to know right now, are you a Calvinist? I could feel this tension in the room. <laughs> like, oh my goodness. So I answered that question the way I answer almost anybody who ever asks me this. And I'll explain to you why in just a moment. My answer, maybe not word for word, but close enough, you can ask anybody who's on the committee, was to the effect of, I don't like taking labels. Why don't you just ask me specifically what you want to know, and I'll tell you what I think the Bible says about it. So what we did at that second meeting is I just went to Romans 9 and said, okay, as clearly as I can articulate this, this is what I believe the Bible teaches, because it's right here in Romans 9, and I will tell you how I'm interpreting this passage, and then if that's good with you, then great. Um, I'm not planning on spending a lot of time in Romans 9 tonight. I say that to make this point. A lot of churches are very divided over this issue. It is very divisive, destructively so. I heard someone who had made a comment about the, the group church meetings we had with the, seven, the letters to the churches in Revelation, seven letters. And this comment was, oh yeah, I'm not going to that. That's a bunch of Calvinists. And I remember thinking... What? It, it is so, it is such a divisive issue here. And if you don't know what Calvinism or Arminianism is, part of me wants to say good. Part of me wants to say, well, well that's a shame because there's a lot of rich theology and thinking to be done here. I can understand some of the disagreement, but what I see is Satan taking advantage of a beautiful doctrine of Scripture and saying, how can I rend the church with this doctrine? Every church I've been at has had Arminians and Calvinists in the church. Every single church. Our Southern Baptist Convention has Arminians and Calvinists in the Southern Baptist Convention. 
our church, we have Arminians and Calvinists in our church. I'm not going to tell you who they are. Do you know why? Because people have left churches over these things. Calvinists and Arminians, I believe, agree on way more than they disagree about. And I think that's why you can have in your Baptist faith and message used by both Calvinists and Arminians, this word here, election. It's a biblical word. So in light of all the controversy surrounding this, I thought maybe the best way to start this topic would just be to say, how does the Bible use this word? We're just going to start there. I really don't know how this is going to go or where it's going to go. Okay? I just want to ask the question, how does the Bible use this word? Okay? I've got a lot of scripture references here. I would encourage you to just write them down as we come to them so you can go back later. I'm going to try not to say anything more than the Bible says about election or the elect. Okay? I'm going to use a couple of other passages that don't use that word. You'll see why in just a moment. And then I would just encourage you, um, on your note-taking sheet, I left on the application, there's a section for observations about election, and then there's a section for some dangers associated with this doctrine. So we're going to talk about it. In the observations about election, as we go through these passages, I want you to make notes about what you're seeing about how the Bible uses this term. And then what we'll try to do is, once we go through these passages, we'll come back together. I'll give you some observations I've made. Maybe you will have made some additional observations that I didn't record, and we can have a time to share that. The purpose is not to step outside of the bounds of what Scripture is teaching, but just to say, how does the Bible use this term? And, and how does the Bible teach these ideas, okay? And... At the end of the day, if people don't like me and you want to kill me, all right, well, we'll just go at it. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to start with Matthew 24. Matthew 24. There are three verses here where this word pops up. It's in verse uh, 22, 24, and 31. So Matthew 24, 22, 24, and 31. You can turn there, and I will read these verses for us. Matthew 24, 22, 24 and 31. Before we read this, I'll tell you when you go and look at the Greek word here, same root for elect and election, the word means uh, select, to select, to choose. Okay, that's what it means. Sometimes it's translated chosen or choose. There, I'll give you three verses later where it's translated that way. Maybe one of your translations will have translated it different here. So I'm going off the ESV. Maybe in your translation, you don't see that word elect. You see a different word. So that's how they've chosen to translate it there. But the Greek, literal, the literal definition is choose, select. Okay. So here's uh, Matthew 24. I'm going to start in verse 22. Uh, Jesus is talking about the future, the end times, sort of. He's talking about the destruction of the temple in some regards here, but... The, the important thing for us is future. There are a future days. And it says in verse 22, if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. For the sake of the elect. 
So at a bare minimum here, and we'll see this over and over, Jesus is talking about people who believe. So elect is a title for people who believe. Now, it's not just a title, or else he would say Christians or believers. He's intending something by this. We're not going to speculate here. We just need to know it's used for people in the future who, I guess, supposedly will believe. If they don't believe now, they will believe by that time. Now down at verse 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So here we see that coupled with this phrase, if possible, there'll be these false Christs and false prophets that will lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Almost suggesting that that's not possible. But if it were to be possible, even the elect might be led astray. And then further down in verse 31 here. Um, Then we'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory in verse 30, now 31. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So Jesus uses this term three times in a row. If you want to write down Mark chapter 13, you'll see the exact same teaching and he, does, he records the exact same terms. I don't have those verses, but it's Mark 13. You can go and look at that later. Exact same terms here, okay? Talking about the future believers. So now Luke chapter 18, if you want to flip forward to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 18, verse 7. And again, I want to encourage you to make some observations as we turn through. And then uh, we'll talk about those here in just a moment. Luke 18, verse 7. So this is the parable of the persistent widow. Uh, Jesus tells this parable uh, to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And there's this lady that goes to this judge over and over, please hear my case. And finally, he answers the request, not because he cares about what she's asking about, but just to get her to be quiet. And Jesus makes the point not to say, God is just like that judge, but to say, you should pray like that persistent widow prayed. That's kind of the point that he's making. Well, then down here in verse 7, he asks after giving the, um, the answer of the judge, the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? And then he kind of continues there, but that's how he uses the word, not really adding a lot to our understanding, but just pointing out again, this is a regular term that Jesus used concerning God's people. This is God's people that he's referring to. Next passage here is Romans chapter 8, verse 33. Romans eight thirty-three. And obviously, I referenced Romans 9 earlier, so you can write that down. Uh, Arguably, the entire chapter, um, and even into chapter 10, is good for this. Um, But uh, we're only going to look at one verse out of chapter 9 tonight. But Romans 8.33, the word appears. Um, God's everlasting love, this is wonderful. Um, If God is for us, in verse 31, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Then verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So there it is uh, again, talking about God's people. Who can bring a charge against God's people? God has justified them. So now down in chapter 9, verse 11, He's speaking in the, through the history of Israel. And in verse 11, I'm, I'm going to back up a little bit. Uh, I'm going to back up to verse 6 to give you a little bit of context here as so you can hear his argument unfolding. It's not as though the word of God has failed, talking about Israel and, and why they are not uh, coming to Christ, sort of. Uh, it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, and he quotes here, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. It's funny, we talked about a lot of these themes this morning. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather, Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So here, it's not elect, but election. Not describing a people, but I guess some kind of process. God's purpose of election. Now we look back at the Baptist faith and message. Election is the gracious purpose of God. So these are biblical phrases they're pulling from here. Election is describing God's purpose. And notice that it's kind of juxtaposed here with um, they hadn't done anything either good or bad. But rather, it's in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works. So now further down, you see the word pop up again in Romans 11, chapter 7. I mean, uh, chapter 11, verse 7, 11, 7, and verse 28, if you're writing these down. Romans 11, 7, and 28. And if you don't get all these written down, come see me afterwards, and I'll give you whatever scriptures you want. Okay, I've got them all written down up here. Romans chapter 11. We see it in verse 7 and then in verse 28. So it says, uh, talking about Israel, the remnant of Israel. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Kind of using some language from uh, Romans 9 and talking about Pharaoh hardening his heart and then God hardening his heart. So the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Okay, and then down in verse 28, uh, we see um, the mystery of Israel's salvation. I'm going to back up just a little bit uh, in verse 26. In this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election... They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. 
So here election appears to be regarding Israel. Uh, Even though they are enemies in regards to the gospel, in regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So now we're going to fast forward a good significant chunk to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. And as you're turning there, this is just to kind of reiterate, I'm literally just taking you through every time this word pops up in the Bible. (laughs) Okay, literally what we're doing here. 1 Timothy 5, uh, verse 21. Okay, 1 Timothy 5, 21. So here are the conversation instructions for the church. He's talking about widows. We studied this a long time ago on Wednesday night, uh, right after I'd gotten here. And um, you see in verse 17, it says, Let the elders that rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Uh, the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. The laborer deserves his wages. Uh, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So here it's kind of invoked in a charge in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels. So apparently we got some elect angels, okay? That's, that's how that's used there. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. Second Timothy 2, 10. Paul is speaking to Timothy again, trying to build him up to pastor uh, the church. He says in... Um, I'm not going to back up that far. Uh... He says in verse 8, I'll I'll start there. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal life. Glory. So here the elect refers to a group of people, supposedly, that have not obtained salvation, but that they will obtain salvation. And the means, apparently, that Paul's referring to is his suffering and the fact that the word of God is not bound. So he will endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain salvation. Next, we've got Titus chapter 1. You can just flip forward right to the next book, right after 2 Timothy. Titus chapter 1, verse 1. We'll see uh, three different introductions here where this term is used. So we see it here in Titus 1, 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So kind of a similar idea. Uh, Paul doing something for the sake of the faith of God's Elect. You can fast forward now to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 1. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 1. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 1. 
So here, Paul's not writing, but Peter is writing. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So those are, that is a theologically loaded introduction. Those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. So we have elect, what the purpose is for, and what we see it in. Okay, that, that is a loaded, that's a loaded introduction. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Here's what it says. I'm going to actually back up because this is helpful. I'm going to back up to verse 8. If these qualities are yours and are increasing... They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. So here, election is coupled with calling, and it's something that we confirm through the diligent practice of certain Christian qualities. If you want that list, you can go look for yourself a little bit earlier. But it is linked with this calling, calling and election. Uh, the final verse that I've got for us here is 2 John chapter 1. There's only one chapter there. Verse 1 and verse 13. So 2 John Chapter 1, verse 1 and 13. The very first verse, the very last verse of this book. The introduction. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. And in the very end, he says, uh, Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. That's it. It is very possible that I have maybe missed one reference to one of those words, but I am pretty certain that is every instance that you see in the scriptures of this word for elect or election being described. I hope you made some comments and observations. I want to give you three more instances where the same word pops up but in my Bible, it is not translated elect or election. It's translated differently. All three instances, I believe, we'll confirm this in a sec more fully, it's translated chosen, okay, or a form of chosen. The three instances here, if you want to write them down real quick, is Matthew twenty-two fourteen, Matthew twenty-two fourteen, Acts chapter 9, verse 15, Acts 9.15 and 1 Thessalonians 1.4. 1 
1 Thessalonians 1, 4. If you want to turn to Matthew 22, we'll go ahead and look at these three verses as well. Matthew 22, 14. This is the end of a parable that Jesus gives about the wedding feast and this king has all these guests, but the guests are too busy to come to the banquet. They're too busy. So he says, okay, go out and find anybody who will come. The poor, the destitute, invite them and gather them and invite them to the wedding. And then those servants went into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But then in verse 11, there's a, the king comes and looks and there's a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then verse 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. Maybe your translation differs than mine. Mine says chosen and not elect there, but it's the exact same word. It is the same word. Acts chapter 9, verse 15. Acts 9, 15. Acts 9, 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. This is in reference to Paul. Paul is a chosen instrument. That's the same word there, elect. He is God's elected instrument, chosen instrument, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings. So a little bit different use here. This is regarding a specific person, okay, not just Christians in general. So the final one here, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4. I'm going to back up to verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So I read over in verse 4, we know that he has chosen you. Same word, elect. He has elected you. How do we know that? Verse 5, because our gospel came not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So to the best of my accounting, again, it's possible I've overlooked something. That's, that's every time that we see that. Now, I've included a few extra verses here because these use not the word elect, but words that are often associated with that, such as the word ordained okay, or predestined, which are scriptural words that are often associated with that. So to be fair, I'm going to give you those two. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. Acts chapter 13, verse 48.
Acts 13, 48. Uh, in, my, in my Bible, it's translated appointed. Uh, the word can also be translated ordained, determined, designated, some other ways that it can be interpreted. So, um, yeah, I think it's sufficient to start here. It says in verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life Believed, So you don't see the word elect, but you see this idea that there are some appointed to eternal life. And as many as were appointed, that many believed. Uh, next we see here uh, Romans. Well, we kind of read that already a little bit, I think. No, I think it's a different verse. Romans 8, 28 through 30. Romans 8, 28 through 30. Um. Uh, yes, this is before. Romans eight twenty eight through 30. Very good scripture memory verse coming up right here, by the way, if you've not memorized this. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who were called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Okay, so the phrase here that's crucial for our purposes is according to his purpose, called according to his purpose, he foreknew, he predestined in order to be conformed to the image of his son. Um, I've got some more scripture references of these words here. If you would like, you can come see me afterwards, but for our time's sake, we're going to push forward. Um, Turn to uh, Revelation chapter 13, verses 7 through 8. And then we're just about to a point to make some observations. Yeah. Revelation 13, um, 7 through 8. Romans 13, 7 through 8. So we see this beast here. There's a lot of prophetic imagery going on here. Okay. And it opens its mouth in verse 6 to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Uh, the final verse here, and, and I'll, I'll tell you why I'm, I'm looking at this one also specifically in just a moment, is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. So the word we're going to look at here that I think is helpful is also the word choose, but it's not the word elect. So it's a different word that we translate choose. You can see here where the process of translation from one language to another sometimes gets complex. But they have another word that's not the word elect, 
but that they use to choose. And this has to do with a decision to do something. I am choosing to do something here. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. I'm going to read the verse and then I'll explain why I've, why I've chosen this one here. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. This ties into what we see later in the Baptist Faith and Message in this article where it says that it comprehends the means to that end. So here, the means to that end is through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And we see that it is God's choosing. Now, the reason, another reason I chose this verse, this word only appears three times in the Bible. It's once here. It's also in Philippians 1.22 and Hebrews 11.25. You don't need to write those down if you don't want to. The reason I include this is because both of those instances have to do with a person making a choice. Hebrews 11.25, Philippians 1.22 has to do with just a regular person making a decision to do something. So we see that man chooses and God chooses, and I think that's an interesting observation. Okay? So in light of all of that, I'm going to give some observations that I've seen kind of trying to tie these together. And I'll open it up for any discussion or any extra observations. And then I'm going to give some dangers associated with this doctrine that we need to be careful to avoid. Then we can kind of open up for a larger Q&A. So if you have any significant questions, let's wait to the end. But we're just going to talk about some observations right now. Here are some observations that I noted. I've got five significant observations or maybe some other ones and you may can share that in a second. First one I've made here is the elect are those who either have been saved or will be saved. We see it, we see it used both ways in Scripture. It can refer to those who are already saved to the elect sister. Hey, your elect sister says this to you. It can be a future person referring forward to Paul as a chosen instrument or referring to the future, the elect in the last days. So the elect are those who have been or will be saved. Second observation, the elect are chosen by God. There's this theme over and over again. The word is even translated in the English as chosen on three different occasions. So the elect are chosen by God. Third observation, the elect are known by God and recorded since before creation. There's the word that we read in there, predestined, or for the, God's foreknowledge, pre-knowing. That means ahead of time, God has known them in some capacity. They are elect, known by, and recorded in the book of life since before the foundation of the world. Fourth observation, the elect can include individuals and groups individuals and groups. We see it referring to Israel at one point, specifically to past Israel or rebellious Israel. We also see it referring to specific people, the elect lady, Paul, the chosen instrument to elect individuals. And then finally, the fifth observation, significant observation that I made, the elect includes both people and angels. I think that's very interesting. Angels do not receive salvation. So that's curious to me that we see that there's elect angels, and elect people, okay? I have tried my absolute hardest to refine 
to limit all of my observations about this doctrine to the exact things that I'm seeing in Scripture. Any observation I just gave you, we can go to a verse and say, here's where we see this, okay? Are there any other observations, and this isn't time for speculation, something that you see in the verses that is significant regarding this, regarding this doctrine? Maybe something I've overlooked. They're just all New Testament references. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. I just think is interesting. Yeah. And, and I would probably need to do a little more study on this, but I believe that there's not a direct equivalent for that in the Old Testament, which I think is interesting. Now, it could be that I'm overlooking something there, so don't, don't hold me to the fire on that. But, uh, yeah, that is an interesting... At least in our English translations, we don't see that word pop up, but... Uh, I think maybe the best thing to do would be to look at the Greek translation of the Hebrew and see if they incorporated that. Um, <laughs> yeah, good observation. Yeah, chosen for sure. Yeah, but but chosen isn't necessarily that word that he's intending. There's more than one word that kind of like the word love. In the Greek, there's multiple different words that can be translated that way. Well, to look at every instance of love and say, oh, well, the word for love appears this many times in the Bible. Well, that's, okay, that's kind of true, kind of not true also, because it depends what word are you translating love. So in the Greek, this word translated love this time doesn't occur that many times. So in my English translation, it might, but then, you know, it's an interesting, it's hard to say for sure. For sure chosen or chosen or, you know, so-and-so chose to do this, you know, can pop up. Um, Mm-hmm. God knew they were going to be saved by faith. Mm-hmm. So they were just as chosen or elected as we are or were, even though they didn't use that word. Yes. Yeah, and that's where I point back to we're trying to say what do we see the Scripture saying. I, I would agree with you. I think that's mm-hmm. taking an Old Testament passage and then applying it, or a New Testament passage and applying it to what I see in the Old Testament. That's the assumption there. Now, I would argue that assumption is correct, but I think it is an assumption. Yeah. Any other observations? Or a deduction? Yeah, that's fair too. Yeah. I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah. Any other observations? I wasn't trying to insult your intelligence. That wasn't what that. (laughs) Yeah, I think you're right. You're right. Yes. Any other thoughts? Okay. Let me give you some dangers here. And then I look forward to having some more lighthearted conversation about this doctrine. Can you do danger? Danger? danger. Uh, do even I don't even know what that reference is. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, some kind of pop culture. I, yeah, I live in a rock, under a rock, so. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Yes, thank you. Lost in space. Oh, yeah, I don't know. I saw the new Lost in Space. I didn't see the old one, yeah. All right. But I saw the new one a long time ago. So, anyway, here we go. Four dangers associated with this doctrine. And let me say ahead of time, we should not think of this doctrine as bad or dangerous. The doctrine is good. Any doctrine is good insofar as it is right. If it is a false doctrine, now it's bad. If it is a correct doctrine, 
it's good. We should embrace it as good. However, there have been some ways that this doctrine has been used in a bad way, and those are the four dangers I'm going to use right now. Here's danger number one. Pitting this doctrine against free will. Pitting this doctrine against free will. And I'll go ahead and put my cards on the table up front. I'm not a huge fan of that phrase, free will, because free implies there are absolutely no boundaries on my will. I'll tell you right now, I can't will to be a person of the opposite sex. Now, our culture would disagree with me and say, yeah, you can. I would say, no, I can't. You know what else I can't will to do? Burn a hole through this wall with laser vision. I there are natural restrictions on our abilities to choose. Okay? So free will in that we still make genuine choices, yes. I do not believe the doctrine of election negates the fact that we make responsible choices. Why do I choose to do something? Because I've chosen to do it. I've made a decision. Now, we use the language, God destined Stacy for me. And I take a tremendous joy and comfort in that. But you know what I also confirm at the same time? She chose to marry me. Why? I don't know. She chose to marry me and I chose to marry her. So I don't think that election should be pitted against the doctrine of free will or understanding of free will. If we're understanding free will to be, we make genuine choices. We do make genuine choices. We make genuine choices. Now, all of our choices are restricted to a degree. And we could have a conversation on that later if you would like to. Some lighthearted conversation would be great. Yeah. We are all restricted in our choices to a degree. Some of that has to do with desire. Some of that has to do with a number of factors. Again, that can be conversation for later. But one danger is pitting this doctrine against free will. We make genuine choices. Um, this is a phrase that I'd heard once. It was really good. Every choice is free. Every choice is determined. Now, how do I make that work together? You know, that's complex. <laughs> I don't know. But I know the Bible teaches every choice is free. I know the Bible teaches every choice is determined. And I believe both of those are compatible. Okay. So th- that's, that's maybe one way to phrase it. Maybe that just makes you more confused. Number two, pitting ourselves against one another over this doctrine. Pitting ourselves against one another over this doctrine. I mentioned earlier, all of our churches have both Calvinists and Arminians. I've been a part of a church once where the pastor from the pulpit had made a statement, I guess I need to be careful here, had made a statement to the effect of, if you don't know what Calvinism or Arminianism is, don't study it. Stay away. Stay away from anybody that even brings the name up. So there was this fear that was generated in the church. And I had someone that I knew very well, and he said, well, I feel like I can't say anything now because I've read some books on Calvinism and some of that stuff is really good. And this brother was terrified of saying anything for fear of being ostracized. For whatever reason, this doctrine just creates a sense of animosity in our churches that is unhealthy. 
We have churches that don't want to come together and worship because apparently certain churches are Calvinist or not Calvinist or whatever. That is destructive for the unity of the church. This is not a, I would argue, this is not a salvific doctrine. It's an understanding of how God applies his grace. We can disagree on how it works and still agree that it works. We can still agree on those things. But what happens is once there's kind of a danger alert, whoa, whoa, you, like even now, my wife, I guarantee you, is sweating bullets because I just used the word Calvinist like five times. She's terrified of it. Because in church work, that's like a, that's like a swear word. You want to get fired from your church, say the word Calvinist. That's like seven or eight times now. She's probably really sweating up a storm. Okay? What that does is it shuts down conversation. Now we don't talk about these things. I'll tell you, there's some pastors that are terrified of how they preach the scriptures because they know if I teach this scripture, it's going to make me sound like a Calvinist. So you know what they do? They avoid it. Well, I can't really do that the way I'm teaching the Bible. If I come across a passage, and I'll tell you, I don't think he would mind me saying this. I had a conversation with, well, maybe he would. I had a conversation with a pastor in the area. Good guy. And he said, you know, the way I approach it is I get in the pulpit and I preach the passage. And if the passage is going to make me sound like a Calvinist, then I'll sound like a Calvinist. And if the passage makes me sound like an Arminian, then I'll sound like an Arminian. And I thought, bro, that's well said. That's good. We've got to stop the dividing over this. And stop making people feel ashamed for saying, I'm a Calvinist or I'm not a Calvinist. That's why I don't like the label. I think it was Carl F.H. Henry, maybe. Uh, I may have this wrong. But the book is um, Fundamentalism in the Word of God. And he's defining what a fundamentalist is like decades ago. That definition has changed. But decades ago, it kind of carried a connotation with it. And he says in the book... Something to the effect of, I think we need to ditch this label. Because whenever we use this label fundamentalist, what we're trying to say is, I believe this is the word of God. But when someone else hears the term fundamentalist, they think, and then there's something else that comes with that. Some kind of baggage that comes with it. Any label we use, whether it's on ourselves or on somebody else, carries baggage with it. And you don't always know what everyone is carrying in their suitcase. So they may hear, oh, wait, so, and, and even in here right now, I'm terrified. There's people thinking, okay, but so is Garrett a Calvinist or not? <laughs> and I worry, what do you have in your bag? What are you going to assume if he is or isn't? Oh, he's not a Calvinist. Oh, so he believes you can lose your salvation? Well, no one would affirm that. Oh, so he believes everyone's got their own baggage that this should not pit us against one another. There's a real danger in that. And it stifles conversation, theological conversation. Number three, pitting this doctrine against evangelism or discipleship. Pitting this doctrine against evangelism or discipleship. And I think that this probably relates directly to number two, the division between one another. Because there are some people out there who would say, well, God is already, he already has an elect. They're written in the Lamb's Book of Life since the beginning of the foundations of the earth. So why should I share the gospel? They're going to be saved anyway, right? That is grossly heretical. <laughs> that is just wrong. That is not what the doctrine... It's disobedient? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
And these people would say, oh, well, yeah, I'm a Calvinist, and Calvinists believe this. So the term for that, if you want to look into this, is hyper-Calvinism. It's someone who says, okay, well, God's already determined anything, so you know what I can do? <laughs> I can do something like this. I know a lot of Calvinists. I don't know any Calvinists that do this. I know a lot of Arminians, likewise, who are the reverse, who they, in their theology, they have the freedom to go out and share the gospel, but then they don't. Okay? So this doctrine should not be pit against either sharing the gospel or living out my life as a follower of Christ. Well, I'm just the elect. I can kind of do whatever. If that's your mentality, I don't think. I do not think you know the Lord. I do not think you do. Bold statement, but I'm willing to stand by that. If that's your mentality. That is not what it is to follow Jesus. The doctrine of election is intended to give us confidence in our evangelism. Think about if you knew that you would be successful at any one thing you did, think about what you would choose to do. Yeah, instantly, like, oh, I'll tell you what I would do. If you knew you would be successful, think of the confidence that would give you. Now imagine knowing that you could mess it up. Now go out and share the gospel with that person who's going to hell. That's terrifying. The doctrine of election gives us comfort. It should not be pit against evangelism or discipleship. And I guess I'm going to go ahead and say at this point also, both Calvinists and Arminians agree with the doctrine of election, that they apply it differently. So it shouldn't be a hindrance to evangelism or discipleship or really even be associated with those theological camps. That's number three, pitting the doctrine against evangelism or discipleship. Here's the fourth one. Developing an unhealthy, unbalanced demeanor. Developing an unhealthy, unbalanced demeanor of either pride or laziness. This is a danger. Developing an unhealthy or unbalanced demeanor of either pride or laziness. So let's say that we take this doctrine and we say, I just don't like this. I don't understand it. I can't comprehend it. My life was better without it. We reject it. There is a danger of falling into a sense of pride. Because suddenly everything that happens is not because God has preordained or determined what will happen, but because I was able to blank. Which is why the, in the Baptist Faith and Message, they titled this article, The Purposes of Grace. God's grace is given so that it would be uh, viewed as grace, not by something that I deserve or earn. So it helps to keep us from being prideful. That's one error. But then the other error we make in the opposite direction is thinking of election in terms of, okay, well, then I can just sit back and do whatever and I can become lazy and not share the gospel and not grow as a Christian. And there's a real danger to that. We also don't want to become prideful in our adoption of election and say, well, I'm part, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm part of the elect. Great. There's a real danger to pride and laziness here. I'll conclude with one analogy that I've heard that was really good. It's that you walk up to a door and on one side of the door, and I believe, I, I believe someone in this church shared this with me. You, you walk up to a door and on one side it says, whosoever will. 
and you go through the door, and that's accepting Christ. And then on this side of eternity, you look back, and at the back side of the door, it said elect. You still saw whosoever will, and you made a decision. I accept this right or not. You grabbed the handle and opened the door. No one opened it for you. And you looked back and saw elect. Now, if this is mind-blowing to you, join the club. I'm not here to, though I try, I'm not here to fully unfold all the vast mysteries of God and his purposes. I can't. I can tell you what the Bible says, and that's really all I've sought to do today. If I've stepped outside of the bounds of that, Lord, forgive me. My goal today was, because this is a highly divisive issue in our churches, and it ought not to be. It's in all three editions of our Baptist faith and message all the way back to 1925. So we need to embrace this doctrine and stop being, and I'm speaking to myself here, stop being so scared of it. Now, I know that there are questions. (laughs) Because I've been doing student ministry long enough. In fact, fun fact, when I got to uh, First DeRitter, the students could do a Q&A with me. I got all kinds of questions. One of the questions was, when you hang up your toilet paper in the, in the bathroom, do you hang it with the flap over or with the flap underneath? And I'm like, I'm going to be your student pastor. That's what you want to know? They thought it was hilarious. They wanted to know. By the way, it's over. Yes, thank you. Okay. One of the other questions I got was from a student in a youth group. He said, hey, tell me about the doctrine of predestination. And suddenly all the eyes in the room were like, and looked to me, and they wanted to know what, what Brother Garrett's going to say. You know, I know that there's questions that are going to be generated from this. Maybe you don't feel safe to ask those questions here. I hope that I've communicated to you that I have brothers and sisters in Christ that land on both sides of this spectrum and how to apply the doctrine. And that I am not ready to be contentious or divisive. And and if you want to talk about it, I love talking about theology. So you can ask any questions now if you'd like. Or if I don't hear any questions in just a moment, I'll close this in prayer. And maybe you'll be one of the shy ones to come up afterwards and be like, I didn't want to ask in front of everybody. But what do you think about this? And we can do that too. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you. We are so comforted. Lord, even if confused, comforted behind this idea that you love us, that you have chosen us, that you have called us, that you call us your chosen ones. Lord, that just fills me with such happiness. But Lord, we know that there are many who are lost, who are dying. They need the gospel. And you have given it to us. So would you stir us to obedience. Fill us with confidence, Lord, knowing that someone else's eternal security doesn't depend on my ability to articulate the gospel well. That you are ready and willing to step in and to reveal yourself to whomever you choose. Thank you, Lord, for using us for such a wonderful purpose as we continue to dwell upon this fascinating doctrine, Lord, would you help us to grow in our understanding, to grow in our love for one another, even in the midst of disagreement, that the truth of your word would not be used by the enemy to bring division to our churches, but actually healing in unity 
that we might be able to come together even with these different understandings and worship together and evangelize together and disciple together. Lord, please restore and heal this deep division in your church. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If y'all ever have questions or want to talk, I'm available. Come and talk to me. Um, I will try to help you the best I can.